You're listening to the Nahum Siegel Network. This is the OU Jewish Reaction Program, Tuesdays at uh, 9 a.m. here on our uh, incredible network, which we know as NSN and can be found at both jmnam.org and nahumsiegel.com. And uh, uh, today we have a very, very interesting program, a roundtable discussion, which I think you'll all find fascinating, especially those of you who love modern Jewish history and current modern Jewish history. Uh, I will introduce our guests in just a moment. This is the week. It's Hanukkah week. It's the week of the Jewish Unity Initiative as we are uh, broadcasting our JMN programs from Paris and presenting the most uh, amazing gathering of Jewish music in the great synagogue of Paris with the simple message that we are taking our message of Jewish unity to Europe and that uh, we are reaffirming our decades-long commitment to Jewish unity. And I want to thank all those who have been enthusiastic about this initiative and I thank those who have been uh, forthcoming with great feeling about what we're doing. It is a uh, a wonderful feeling to be uh, leading the American delegation of this very special project. Uh, well, Jewish Action, yeah, we call the show Jewish Reaction. Jewish Action is the magazine of the Orthodox Union. And the Winter 5776 edition, believe it or not, celebrates 30 years of Jewish Action. And the Jewish Action editorial board is well represented in this hour. We have Rabbi Dr. Tzvi Hirsch Weinrib, who serves as Executive Vice President Emeritus at the uh, Union of at the Orthodox Union. Rabbi Weinrib, welcome back to the Nahum Siegel Network. Thank you. Great to have you here. Uh, Nachama Carmel has the distinction of being the editor in chief of Jewish Action. Mazel Tov on the thirtieth, and welcome to the show. Thank you. And Jerry Shrek is here. Jerry is chairman of the Jewish Action Committee. He has, I'm sure, many 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 memories of what's been happening over the last thirty years. Jerry. Oh, thank you for wearing your JMM cap. That's much appreciated. Kept you uh, kept you good from the uh, kept you protected from the weather. Uh, Jerry, welcome to the Nahum Siegel Network. Thank you very much. It's great to have you all here. Uh, Thirty years. Rabbi Weinrib, we'll start with you for a moment for historical perspective. If so much has changed in thirty years, one can only imagine how much has changed in fifty-seven hundred years. Because <laughs> if you just look at this very small sliver of Jewish history, this tiny little time period. It is so different today than it was 30 years ago. Yeah, I mean, arguably, it's the world's change in the past five years because the pace of change, especially of change in Jewish community, Jewish history, uh, has accelerated over the years. So the past 30 years, maybe more change has happened than in the previous 100 years right. in some ways. That's true. Uh, 30 years ago, we were just be just kind of getting post-Holocaust. Uh, we were dealing with very different issues um, it was still very, very early in the electronic communications world that we now live in. Um, and it's funny because people who were used to the 1950s, the way they viewed the 80s, you know, with fax machines and, you know, a little bit of faster paced life, it was such a difference. Now think of what's happened in the last 30 years. It's a complete world no, of it's, difference. It's a tremendous change. But it's changing not only in, in uh, superficial ways, it's changing in some very profound ways. And I think if you look at this uh, issue, of uh, celebrating 30 years, you'll see that the changes are not uh, just, uh, you know, changes in style of dress. Mm-hmm. They're changes in hashkafa, changes in halachic approaches to things, uh, changes in the major issues of our time. Yeah. Nachama, how difficult is it to sit down and try to do a 30-year retrospective for this issue? This was definitely one of the most difficult issues we've worked on in, in recent memory. <laughs> um, one of the challenges was, you know, you know, a lot of the issues we have, we have writers, we have researchers, and, you know, they send in their articles, we work with them. For this issue, we had to do that. We had to be the researchers, we had to be the writers, and we had to be the editors. So it was, it was really overwhelming on many levels. 
also, we really didn't give ourselves enough time. To really, <laughs> we really needed six to eight months for this, and we, we pulled it together in, in a matter of three or four months, so I'm pretty proud of that. Well, it's come out uh, unbelievably, and uh, doing your own research, I didn't even think of that. You're actually researching your own contribution to Jewish history, as right, you think about exactly. it. exactly. So we went through, we have an archive uh, at the OU, 120 uh, issues, um, and we searched through them. Now, I've been editor for 14 years, so my issues, even my issues, I don't remember my issues. I remember, nice. you know, certain pieces, but I had to, I had to refresh my my own memory. And then I actually called the previous editors, and I and I got their input. I really couldn't read through right. 120 issues, but um, we really tried to be as thorough as possible. And of course, you know, we we couldn't possibly highlight every memorable issue. I mean, looking at it now, I think, oh, why didn't I put this in? You know, but it's just the way it is. It's impossible to be comprehensive. How much was left then on the cutting room floor? A tremendous amount, right? Tremendous amount. And, we, and you know, we decided at one point, we said, okay, should we reprint some of our memorable articles? And even that process, our editorial board members will recall, I mean, there were so many emails, dozens of emails going back and forth. Should we include this? Should we include this? Should we? So much assessment and reassessment and evaluation went on. And it's it's really it boils down it's really a subjective process because how do you determine what is a piece that's worthy to be reprinted? Right, and there so, are other uh, methods to do this. You could be a year long or you know a couple of years long of you know, retrospectives and things. But I like this. I like when it's in yearbook form and you're going back and doing all 30 years at once. Now, now I should I should just I want to tell our um, you know, our listeners the we the Jewish Action is setting up. It's not ready yet, but it's setting up a mini website. Mm-hmm to commemorate our 30 years, and that website will give readers access, hopefully it's an ongoing process, but access to hundreds of articles, many of which right now are not online. Right. But we're in the process of putting them online, and, and a lot of the stuff here is going to be you know, on the mini website, but in different form, like different kind of infographics, and hopefully we'll ask for reader input as well, like what do you think is the most memorable? Right. And I'm sure people will have a lot to say about that. Uh, Jerry Shrek, do you remember day one? Do you remember when it was uh, decided that it's a necessity for the OU to pursue this and get Jewish action out to the community? Uh, I haven't uh, been there for, for 30 years. As you know, Nachum, I was commissioner of the baseball league before this. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> 10 years ago, I'll just, yeah, I'll, I'll just give you some ba- background. Uh, Steve Zavitsky, about 10 years ago, asked me to join uh, the OU. And uh, to give you a little background about how the OU operates, every new board member or member of the steering committee is given a uh, volunteer job. Right. And he asked me, what is your background and uh, what would you like to do? And since I'd spent uh, many years uh, in senior marketing positions with companies like Doubleday and uh, um, McMillan and McGraw-Hill, and I had uh, involvement with uh, new publications like Psychology Today and Book Digest. So I said I would love to be involved in communications. So they put me uh, in terms of uh, communications, the uh, commission chairman, and as part of that I was uh, put in charge of as uh, an overseer, so to speak, not really, but uh, someone to supervise uh, more or less and serve as a buffer between senior leadership at the OU and the professional staff. And I became commission chairman for communications and uh, Jewish action. And uh, it's been a love for the last 10 years and uh, working with some very, very good professional people. In fact, if you took the staff of uh, Jewish Action magazine and put them into any other uh, magazine editorial board, whether it's uh, New York Magazine or anybody else, they would do a terrific job. Boy, that's quite a compliment, wouldn't you say? Boy, oh boy. We have our special guest in our studio, a roundtable discussion about Jewish Action. And it's 30 years. All right, so now what makes it in? I don't know who of the three, maybe all three of you, had a role in terms of what makes it in to the 30. Um, were you looking more religious, more 
you know, way of life type articles, more political issues, something of everything? How do we decide what gets into this? I'll, I'll take that just for sure. a, a second. I re- remember uh, Rabbi Shulman from the Young Israel of Midwood told me how much he likes Jewish Action Magazine. I said, why do you like it so much? He said, because it's unpredictable. Mm. And the fact that uh, it is unpredictable, that's how I think we, uh, we chose the various articles. As a matter of fact, to prepare for this interview, Nechama had sent me an index, and I tried to print it out. And when I saw that it said 3,000 pages, I decided to just use my telephone and to see what the index looked like for 30 years. That's 120 issues, four times a year, and each issue must have at least 15 to 20 different articles. So in order for uh, the editorial board to get involved, and we have, by the way, nine people on the editorial board, including us, um, it was a uh, real job to go through all of those uh, issues and go through each of the different uh, uh, categories. Rabbi Weinberg, are you happy with what ended up in the magazine? Yeah, uh, very much so. Um, obviously, we had differences of opinion about the top 30 or the top <laughs> 10 for 30, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, but I, our, our uh, editorial board is a very uh, interesting one. Uh, we have nine different people, as Jerry said, and we're very different, have different opinions, etc. But somehow we always manage to reach consensus. It's not a matter of a vote, you know, six against three with, the, with this one. We, we, we kind of convince each other. And I think, yes, uh, it's, it's dazzling. It's a very varied selection of articles that are uh, included or referred to. Um, and I, I think it reflects the changes that have gone on in the world and the Jewish world and in the Orthodox Jewish community, and especially in the United States over the past 30 years. How controversial is Jewish action try to be, or how controversial can they be? Is there is there a concerted effort not to print very controversial, divisive articles. How does, how does that balance work, especially if you say that usually people end up in agreement? How do you get to that point when there's so many issues out there that need to be addressed? Well, I, I don't think, you know, we're, lo- we're certainly not looking to be divisive in any way, but but I think um, I always felt, even before I became editor, mind you, I've been reading this publication since I'm 17, <laughs> and I won't tell you how old I am right now, but um, I've been reading for many years, and what, I, what always attracted me to the publication is the fact that it's a, it's a very broad it has a lot. It's it's um, it has a very wide range right. of articles and of thinking. So, for example, we've published uh, the thought of Avram Cook, and we'll publish the thought of Yisro Hutner. Um, I think that range is unique in the Orthodox world. We really try to reach out to the broad spectrum of Orthodoxy, and in that sense, we have a certain honesty. Um, uh, we don't present one, you know, segment of the Orthodox community, and and I find that always very refreshing because we don't have the party line. Like we'll we'll present different sides of an issue, right? Um, and then we want and we respect our readers. We want to know what do you think. We do not talk down to our readers. We will present all sides of an issue, and um, and and in that sense, I think that our readers appreciate that. Why does that work for you? So many other organizations and and magazines who try that end up marginalizing themselves it, it, they do it and and they're the ones who end up you know on the outside of the circle so to speak it, it seems that you're able to address all these issues and personalities and biographies and and not suffer from that what's the I, answer i think it's the the answer i think is that the jewish action is a reflection of the orthodox union and that diversity that honesty that the willingness to uh, look at the entire spectrum of orthodoxy in the United States and in the world, that's part of what the Orthodox Union stands for. So in that sense, um, uh, Jewish action reflects uh, the uh, the thinking and the philosophy of the parent organization. Right. Um, it's interesting. We do get flack. 
we do get uh, people writing in angry letters, uh, etc. Um, but uh, that's the way it is. Uh, we, <laughs> don't, we don't shy away from controversy. I think that the answer that I would give, in addition to what the Chumash said, is that we try to be relevant. Mm-hmm. We try to cover whatever is relevant. And sometimes controversy is very relevant, and uh, we, we try not to shy away from it. But again... Yeah, but the approach to controversy. There are those who approach controversial topics with anger, with a real agenda, with a, um, you know, with just uh, an attitude, so to speak. It seems this is attitude-free. Am I just being too kind? No, I, I, don't, think, I don't think you're being kind. I think you're being accurate. Uh, I think it's uh, what you're saying is uh, is is right on. But one way to do that is to filter out the emotions that you may have. A particular item have all sorts of emotions that are about a particular issue. But if the writer just writes the facts and describes what the facts are, even from their own perspective, and avoids editorializing, avoids pushing any agenda, uh, then you have the result that we have. Right. And that's something we work on just uh, an article I'm thinking of uh, uh, yeah. this morning. Right, right, right. We, this we, morning. we gave back an article to a writer and saying, you know, it's a great article, but stick to the facts and stop pushing your own personal agenda. Uh, that's not the, this is not the place for it. And they came back very cooperatively with a, a re, rewritten or re-edited uh, article that I think will be uh, a future issue, will be uh, remarkable and uh, fair, factual. That, that's the answer. Avoid, uh, avoid personal agendas, avoid extreme points of view, avoid editorializing, and stick to the facts. Jewish Actions 30th, uh, Nechama Carmel, uh, Rabbi Dr. Tzvi Hirsch-Weinrib, Jerry Shrek in studio as we talk about the 30th anniversary edition all right um it's funny because a lot of i mean you did print before we get to the to the 30 items which we'll do at some point uh, you did print certain articles that had been in previous issues again uh must have been a difficult task but it's funny the i don't i don't think it's by coincidence that that some of these articles maybe you could even argue all of them are really central to the, the to the um jewish action reader you know you talk about the first one you print from 1992 on amuna you know, that's a topic that, you know, you could print at any point in Jewish history and it would be very worthwhile. I think that when you print a, an article about the Rav and his impact, there's no question that of all the organizations and of all those who, you know, outside of maybe of Yeshiva University, of all those who have, you know, trumpeted the, the influence of the Rav on American Jewish, on American Jewry and really world Jewry, the Orthodox Union, I think, has been primary among them. So again, it's a, it's an article that reflects that. Kirov, who's better at it than, you know, the people associated with the Orthodox Union. So again, an article that I guess uh, in some way sums up, you know, that whole effort. So as, as much as there's, um, I'm sure there was a, a, uh, a process to pick articles from the past. It's, it's interesting to note that all these in some way really reflect a common thread of the Orthodox Union for the last 30 years. Well, I would like to say something about sure. that. Um, even though uh, we are uh, a program that's funded and we are part of the Orthodox Union, uh, and we uh, try very hard to uh, reflect the Orthodox Union's position as, mu- as much as we can, uh, we're also a very um, uh, interesting type of publication. As I said, we are uh, basically uh, attitudinal-free, uh, we try very, very hard to uh, to stick to the facts, uh, but in most cases uh, we succeed. In some cases, we might not be totally aware of the issues. Uh, the slogan of the OU is Torah or Mitzvos. Torah or Mitzvos doesn't really change over the last 3,500 years. But what has changed are the issues and the attitudes of our 
constituents of our co-religionists as well as the outside world. So if you look at a lot of these articles, uh, things have changed, but in some cases, nothing has changed. Right. Well, it's interesting you say it that way. <laughs> I'd love your comment on this because Torah and mitzvahs, Jerry's right, right, do not change. But if you look at page 34 and 35 of this magazine, there's been a lot of change out there. Our attitude toward Ethiopian Jewry, much, much different than it was. And in fact, race and Judaism, much, much different than it was 30 years ago. I think you'd have to agree. Then, of course, I mean, there's no secret that same-sex marriage now is commonplace in the United States in 2015. As this article and this cover story was written in 1993, I can only imagine how different the attitude was and how some people picked it up. And said, "What you know? Is, is it even possible what they're what they're writing about and that type of thing?" So, yeah, a lot stays the same, but the differences are so blatant. Well, you're going to France soon, <laughs> to Paris, and in French, I can't say it in French, but uh, the, it, the the statement originates in French. The more things change, right. the more they remain the same. Correct. Uh, so there's a lot of change going on, but even in in the pages that you refer to, um, there's a lot that's um, ongoing. Um, the loss of great leaders right. is something that still hurts. Correct. Um, the loss of Ramosha Feinstein, Rakov Kamenetsky, Rav Hutner, these are some of the people that we wrote about, Rav Soloveitchik, of course. Um, but then 1994, A Soldier's Dilemma, What Does Jewish Law Say About Evicting Jewish Settlers? Right. That's something that uh, people are afraid of this very moment. And people would think that you wrote that article 10 years after yeah. that. It was 10 years before what happened in Gaza. So this has always been an ongoing issue in the Jewish world. And then there are things in this array of articles that existed 30 years ago, but we didn't know about it and didn't write about it, like when leaders fail, healing from rabbinic scandals. Could not have written about it then, right? Right, because it just wasn't uh, commonplace. It wasn't commonplace. People were in denial. And at least uh, this article shows that at least we're not no longer in denial. We're right. facing an issue squarely. We talk about some of the, uh, the activist issues of the 1980s when this magazine was first printed, and obviously Soviet jury is primary among them. And now think about how different life is in the Soviet Union for Jews and for the Jews who left the Soviet Union. It's a completely different world for them, and of course our reaction and attitude toward them. Go tell our kids, or at least you know the kids who are my age, meaning my, my the kids who are my kids' age, tell them that there was a struggle for Soviet jury that enveloped the entire Jewish world, and obviously American jury to a tremendous extent, and they'll, they'll wonder what you're talking about. And that was one of the cause celebs, if not the cause celeb of that era when it came to activity, when it came to activism, I should say. But when I mentioned uh, Torah Mitzvos, uh, all of these issues certainly have, have changed. Sure. But, uh, our a message in our masthead is that uh, Jewish Action Magazine is a, a forum, a platform for legitimate uh, discussion of issues within the framework of halacha. Right. So despite all of the changes that, that take place, we strive very, very hard to uh, keep within the halachic framework. Yeah, 100%. And I agree with you when you said Torah and mitzvahs don't change. It's just amazing to see how many things do change. Um, women in Torah study. Again, I mean, this is 20 years ago the article was written. It was the, It looks like it was the front cover of uh, of the Jewish Action magazine from back then. Um, how would we categorize it today? Is it, in fact, a world of difference, or is it just a tweak in terms of women's Torah education compared to two decades ago? What would we say? How different is it? I think it's very different. Uh, there's been a, a great change in the level the quality and the quantity uh, of women now who are really advanced scholars 
in every aspect uh, of Torah. Um, and uh, that's something that certainly didn't exist 60 years ago. Right. But even 30 years ago, we're just kind of starting. I think this article was written, now it's a little more than 20 years ago. Right, 93. There's there's been a great change. Women are playing roles. Um, uh, Women now are Yoatzot Halacha. Right. Uh, So they have halachic expertise, which you didn't see 20 years ago. Right. Uh, Certainly in the number of women that we have placed in those kinds of positions. So that's something that's certainly been a a sea change. Would Jewish leadership, and I, I ask everybody's perspective on this, would Jewish leadership in the early 1900s frown upon what we have become? Would they look at all these issues and say, my God, now I understand, you know, same-sex marriage, we could all agree that they, that they likely would not be too happy about that direction and that we have to even address that issue here in American society. But when it comes to women's issues, being active, supporting Israeli soldiers, and, and thinking about what Israel means to us, how would they view where we've gotten to now in 2015? I think that uh, they would be surprised at how much things have changed. Uh, I don't think in most situations that they would be disappointed. When you speak about women studying and uh, studying Torah, uh, and and in some sectors of our community it's looked upon as being something new and liberal and uh, not consistent. Inappropriate. Et cetera. But the person who really launched it all was the Chavetz Chaim, Milano Gadol. Chafetz Chaim writes, it's not something that somebody heard him say, he writes, that because of a change in the sociology of Judaism, namely that women were then, in his time, a hundred years ago or more, um, uh, getting better educated secularly, so there was a need to complement that change with uh, better religious education for, for Jewish women. And he, and it was his philosophy that changed, that brought the Beis Yaakov movement, etc., um, so he himself was cognizant of the fact that there has to be some change in some of these attitudes as the world changes. I don't think the Chafetz Chaim in his wildest dreams <laughs> would have known, would have foreseen how much change uh, there's been. By the way, moving away from the women's issue, but the Chafetz Chaim was known because of his concern about Lush and Hara. Right. But he would never dream that Lush and Hara now could be done with a button, right. and you'd press a button, and your emails would be reached by five million people, and right. you'd be spreading Lush and Hara in an instant to millions. Uh, so uh, he would still be concerned with Lush and Hara today, that's for sure. Maybe, maybe also, maybe <laughs> on the flip side, he'd also be flattered with how much Smirish Lushen campaigns there are to uh, to counteract all yeah, that. <laughs> uh, to the extent that they're effective, he would be very pleased with uh, with those uh, reactions. No question about that. Um, you know, it's funny, as I look at this list, messianism was such a big topic because of Chabad and because of the, and, 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 you know, what's funny about the whole thing is that really today it might be the, the most, the, it, it might be the most enthusiastic, we might be in an era of the most enthusiasm of messianism in Chabad and in the Jewish world ever, even when the, even when the Rebbe was alive and even right after his death. But for some reason, maybe because he's not here no longer, or maybe because there's such a a, a um, sour attitude toward those who promulgate it, it, it really seems to be a non-issue now. Am I am I right or wrong that it's basically has dissipated at this point? 
Well, the person who wrote the article back in 1995 was Dr. David Berger. Right. So I think you should ask him that question. <laughs> he, he, would, he, he would argue it hasn't dissipated much. Argue it has not but dissipated. as a worldwide Jewish topic, it seems like it's not on the headlines, in the headlines it's anymore. It's interesting. Messianism today doesn't only center around Chabad. Right. Uh, in Israel, the left wing politically looks at the right wing as being messianic kooks and every settler is a messianist, etc. And the right wing correctly looks at some of the left wing. If you dream of a new Middle East where everything's going to be wonderful and we can cooperate with everybody, that's messianism of a different sort. Uh, So it's a different type of messianism. It might not be a a messianic figure, uh, but the idea that we now, one reaction to all the terrorists we have lately with the terrorism and the stabbings, etc., is... Ah, so it's the Mashiach right. It's and That's one way people have of coping with it, to right. think that Mashiach is around the corner. Right. And that's uh, basic Jewish belief, that the Mashiach can in any moment be around the corner. But I think you're right that in many ways uh, that particular aspect, the Chabad aspect of Messianism, uh, has uh, decreased. But again, that's my opinion, and my good friend Dr. Berger would probably disagree with me not violent, violently, but vehemently. Yeah, understood. Uh, Nahama, was there a lot of uh, pushback when you did publish When Leaders Fail? Was there a lot of reaction that uh, you would have preferred not to have had, or everyone understood that it was time to address this issue? You know, I think for the most part people did understand it was time to address it, and, and we really got, the, the, I think, the best possible author for the piece, Rabbi Yitzhak Breidowitz, mm. is such, has such a rare combination of you know, he's, psycho- he's psychologically aware, he's, he's empathetic, and yet he's brilliant, he's halachic. So I was so grateful that he agreed. He actually, he did not agree to write the piece at, at the outset. <laughs> and we really had to twist his arm. And Baruch Hashem, he did agree in the end. We didn't expect a 6,000-word article, which he came up with. And he really insisted that we not cut. And we relented in the end. You know, every time I worked on that piece, and I must have read the piece in the process of working on it, I don't know, a dozen times, it moved me. It, it was such a beautiful piece. It moved me every time. And I, and I felt it was so needed because, you know, I mean, unfortunately, this issue has affected all of us. Right. And I know people who have, you know, they were congregants of, you know, various synagogues where something happened. And the pain was very raw. And people really needed some kind of direction. I felt the article provided consolation and comfort to people who experienced something. Was like that this. the takeaway? The takeaway from the article was that consolation? And uh... I, when, when I spoke to Rabbi Brideros about the piece, I really had in mind that he direct this to, to the congregants, not to the rabbis. Right. Those he who happened are... to direct it to rabbis, too, right. I felt, in the end, because, you know, he was, he was very empathetic towards rabbis, too. Now, some people felt, well, he was a little bit too empathetic to rabbis. He was too sympathetic. And I, and I hear that. But I, I think overall, when people read it, they because it was it's, it was incomprehensible. How does this happen? And he did provide some answers to that. How something like this can happen? Wow. Rabbis are human. Rabbis are people too. And that was wow. That was something. Well, you know, it seems so simple, but we never thought of that. Right. Who would ever <laughs> think overwhelming that? Overwhelming response. Uh, we got a lot of emails and a lot of uh, positive. Letters. Very positive. Interesting. Is there any issue that gets more reaction than when you write about tuition and the tuition crisis? Because I would think that would get the most reaction because it hits everybody and it hits them really hard. Or are people so immune to this topic that they're not even reacting to it? Yeah, at this you point? know, I, I'll tell you, um, one of the issues that got a lot of response, which surprised me, was neo-Hasidus. Neo-Hasidus 
people really that people wrote about no but it, 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 i'm saying afterwards they I'm, wrote? I'm not angry I'm, no I'm, I'm saying but they had comments about that yeah this, this was it was first of all i never i mean frankly we were sitting at an editorial board meeting and the younger members <laughs> of the meet uh, at that meeting said you know this is happening i said really <laughs> to me it was a surprise i never heard about neo-hasidism this was news to me <laughs> so then when we actually wrote the article and it was like all over twitter and social media this is really a phenomenon that was sort of underreported. So, and that because it was underreported, this really, like, yeah, this really is happening. I'm yeah, I know young people who read that article who normally would not pick up Jewish action, and that and that struck their fancy. It's funny you say that, and a lot of it, of course, is surrounded by the Jewish music world, which we're very familiar with, but it also caught us a little bit off guard. There was such a movement, right? Because it's, it's a, when you think about Yeshiva University, you don't think right. about Hasidus, correct? And yet, Rabbi Moshe Weinberger is there right. now. So things are definitely changing there, but it was sort of like, you know, in a subtle way that nobody really mentioned. And then once we mentioned it, it was like, you know what? That is happening. That's funny. So um, we did get a lot of response to that piece. Um, and, you know, then there are articles that just, you know, we, we, we publish. And then I also am surprised, like, why did that piece get a response? So, for example, we had a piece like, why aren't our kids in shul? Um, this was written by... Well, I assume that's part of the whole... You know, kids at risk type discussion. It really right? wasn't. It no? wasn't the kids at risk thing. It was it was talking about teens who just they're not inspired. Sleep in. Right. They sleep in Shabbos morning, and these are not kids who are necessarily doing drugs or anything. Right. They have terrible. no desire to be in shul. Right. So it, it. I mean, it was written by I think a headmaster at Ramaz, and that article got a lot of a lot of feedback. Apparently, it was a phenomenon that you know. So I'm right. Tuition's not a big deal anymore, huh? <laughs> Everyone's too no, used but- to it. Jerry, go ahead. The other response that we got that was very interesting was the uh, texting on Shabbos by people Ooh, who consider right. themselves from. Right. And uh, the parents uh, were uh, totally astounded that their children could be spending a Friday night at someone's house and uh, finding out about it through uh, texting with their iPhones. Right. And uh, that re- that created quite a response. Yeah. I spend a lot of time thinking about that, Robert Weiner, by the way, whether we're going to have to make adjustments to our tradition based on technology. You know, there have There have been adjustments made over the years. There are things that I can guarantee you rabbis would never have allowed a hundred years ago, which we do today. And I can give you some examples off the air. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. If we're I ready. can give you one example on the air. Yeah. Uh, and that is the fact that everyone I know, right to left, uses a Shabbos clock for his lights in the dining room right. on Shabbos. And Moshe Feinstein frowned on it, to say the least, right. frowned on it. Uh, and he frowned on it not for purely halachic reasons, but kind of what we would call slippery slope reasons. Right. If you can start using electricity to do this and that, next thing you're going to do is uh, something which is really uh, at the level of an isid or isa. Right. Uh, but t- t- texting is more than just um, a malacha, a possible malacha of, of turning on electricity. Uh, it's also an addiction. I mean, it's the way our kids and to a great extent we live. Uh, I remember the, the analogy that comes to mind is my father, Olavasholom, and smoking. He was a heavy smoker, and he was addicted to tobacco. But the addiction went away <laughs> with shkia, with candlelighting Friday night, and came back Motzei Shabbos with havdalah. And we're going to have to somehow train our kids and ourselves uh, that there are, there's more than just cigarette smoking and turning on lights. That you have to kind of learn to de uh, detoxify yourself from. Uh, over the 24, 25 uh, hours of Shabbos. And they use that word, addiction, when it comes to texting. They use the well, same word. I, 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 I happen to have just attended a lecture at Columbia University for, uh, on addictions, and it is um, 
neuropsychiatrically an addiction. In other words, addiction is not just a purely psychological uh, phenomenon. It's a physical phenomenon in the brain. There's an act attached to it. Right, And and, and therefore addictions apply not only to drugs and alcohol, etc., but to things like being addicted to your iPhone or right. to your texting, etc. Boy, oh boy. By All right. way, speaking of yes, addictions, a, f- a few years ago we did an article on uh, divorce in the uh, Jewish com- in the Frum community, and it's associated uh, with gambling addictions, with uh, substance abuse, alcohol abuse, and uh, we don't shy away from those types of issues. We handle it with uh, sensitivity, and uh, the reactions are mostly positive because people want to hear about how to overcome these issues, and uh, that's what our uh, platform is. All right, boy. Sometimes people need the hope that they're overcomable, right? People want to think, and, and hopefully they are, in fact. Uh, we're speaking with the Jewish Action Editorial Board representatives during this very special Jewish Reaction program here at the Nahum Siegel Network, where Dr. Tzvi Hirsch Weinrib is Executive Vice, uh, Ex- Executive Vice President Emeritus of the uh, Orthodox Union. Nahama Carmel has the distinction of being the Editor-in-Chief of Jewish Action. We wish her and the entire Board of Mazel Tov on this landmark 30-year issue. Uh, Jerry Shrek is here. He's chairman of the Jewish Action Committee, and we are speaking about uh, some of the articles that have been written over uh, the years, in fact, some of which were uh, highlighted. You know, we didn't even talk about 9-11. Uh, until I saw this issue, yeah. I did not realize how much that event affected our community and that there was, you know, the 10-year anniversary of it and obviously the different um, uh, perspectives right after the event, and obviously it affected everybody in so many different ways and obviously... The OU office is right near where it happened, so you know even more so. But it, it's you know when you think about it, it's such a it, 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 it's not an event that just belongs to uh, you know to the thousands of people who lost their loved ones. It's an event that really goes to the entire United States of America, and we could argue to the entire Jewish community. Well, what's interesting is if you'll notice on page fifty-seven, the photo that we got from AP, we happened to look through the AP you know um, right. archive to try to get an appropriate photo. It's not obvious, but the man there is wearing a kippah. Right. That's a Jewish man who's running away from 9-11. Right. Um, yeah, the OU office is a few blocks away, and the writer of the piece, we, we thought this was just very – we did a whole uh, 9-11 issue during the 10th anniversary, and we actually won a Rock Hour Award for that issue. Wow. Um, it, a lot of A.S. told two pieces, and obviously we focused on religious people who were there, Some, one of whom no, did not make it. I think two of whom did not make it, unfortunately. Um, we thought this piece was very compelling. It's written by Raisin Rosenfeld, who is uh, who works at the OU, and she was coming to work that morning, and this was her experience. It's it's very poetic. It, it actually wasn't written by her. It was it's an as told to piece, but right. it was it was told by her. Um, when we worked on this issue, it's like I lived, ate, and breathed 9/11. I became obsessed with the topic, and you know the videos of 9/11. I I was compelled to watch it over and over and over again. It was. It, talking about addiction, I was I was literally <laughs> addicted to 9/11, and it was it was frightening because it was it was such an overwhelming topic. You know, when 9/11 really happened, I was on maternity leave. I had just had a fir- my first baby. I was overwhelmed with my own life. I relived it. I almost had my own like I I experienced 9/11 for almost for the first time ten years later when I when I worked on that issue. Um, so it was and a very re- and reliving it when no one else is. Right. It, we, it was we very had, powerful. We've had this discussion about working on Kinnis when it's Purim time, right? We've had this discussion. So working uh, working on a 9-11 piece when no one else is suffering from the, you know, you don't have that camaraderie that we had during the actual 9-11. Right. Must be even a little bit more difficult. It, it was just a very, it was an overwhelming experience. I just remember being just like I couldn't focus on anything else but 9-11. Um, so, you know, I wasn't surprised that we won an award. It just, it, it um 
took over my life. Unbelievable. How much how much uh, thought is put into what to do about Israel in terms of including it in Jewish action? I mean, uh, I would assume there have been hundreds of articles at this point about different organizations that can be helped that are in Israel and how people can, I don't know, help soldiers and, you know, and, and those who are in need in Israel and what our attitude has to be toward Israel. I mean, it, it, I, am I right that, that there's a, a good percentage of articles that have been written that really keep this bridge between the U.S. reader and Israel active? Yeah. Rabbi? Uh, I mean, there's many ways to answer the question, but um, um, one thing that comes to mind is we have almost every issue an article by uh, Peter Abelo, who's mm. uh, really a tour sure. tour guide, an expert tour guide in Israel, and, and that gives the reader, uh, and, and that his column or his article appears almost whatever the theme is of the general uh, thing could be 9/11. There's still going to be a piece about some uh, moshav in the midbar <laughs> that uh, uh, that Peter who makes very very attractive makes us want to visit. So so Israel is always literally. Um, in the pages. In the magazine. On the one hand. On, on the other hand, we're writing for an American audience. Uh-huh. Uh, and I believe that the, by and large, with many exceptions, of course, that American orthodoxy and Israeli orthodoxy, there are many, many differences between their major concerns and major interests. And we're writing mainly for, for an American audience. And, and um, sometimes we get criticized for not covering some aspect that's very, very important to Israel, and perhaps sometimes they're right, uh, but we do. We cover Israel in, in, in so many, many different ways. One of the articles that you saw back on whatever page it was was uh, the Israeli army, soldiers, right. et cetera, et cetera. So these things do appear. Uh, and we have, I think, an article uh, that's coming up about lone soldiers, mm. uh, something that we're working on right now. Um, I happen to have a, a grandson who's a lone soldier, Although he says, Ani lo bodeid. <laughs> I'm not alone. <laughs> but he's alone in many ways. And, and so many, many American boys or boys from other countries outside of Israel. And that's something that we're focusing on. Unbelievable. All right. Tell me about this uh, article, the 30 for 30. Was this done in any specific order? Was it meant to be most impactful event of the last 30 years to the 30th? How was this done? It's done by Steve Lipman, right? Well, Steve, Steve Lipman, yes. He was a major contributor. But right. it was also... Um, with JA editorial staff, which basically they means had input. My, my it basically means me and my assistants. <laughs> <laughs> so as I said, we did a lot of research for this issue. So this was this was a little difficult because we actually started out with ten, and then we said, you know what? Random, meaning not in any specific order. Ten right. things. By the way, the order now is also random. Right. There is this There's a random no top order. To bottom, right. In other words, number one is not, not the, really number uh, right. one. Understood. Number one. Yeah. Understood. No, people You're think we already got a letter saying number one. So, right. you know, it, number one is not number one. You're pointing out 30 different things that exactly. are of significance in recent Jewish history. Right. So, and you'll see there's a mix between the Jewish world right. and the Orthodox world. Right. So we, we, you know, our editorial board sort of served as a think tank, and we just kept raising, well, what are changes? You know, right. for example, we said... Well, don't give an example yet, because what I want to do is I want to try to get through all 30 for a second and, okay. and call on one of you to at least give me a sentence or two on the concept, on the event, on the uh, on the notion of what's being introduced here. Uh, Jerry, GOP, here we come. Okay. What do you say about this so change that we've seen? Thing. Somebody we said, uh, if you read that piece very carefully, we said that it's a slow and steady uh, emergence of uh, our community right. turning toward the Republicans. Correct. Now, Agreed. other people have commented already, and we're not immune from criticism from our own OU board members, uh, one of whom uh, wrote in and saying, how could you say that? Uh, we have uh, all kinds of uh, estimates and, uh, and numbers that say that the uh, that Jews vote predominantly Democratic. Right. 
And we're saying that's fine, but there's a slow and steady push Correct. of people t- turning toward the Republican Party for various reasons, especially their uh, stance toward Israel. Rabbi Weinrib, the 2000 Democratic uh, nomination of Joe Lieberman for vice president, good for the Jews or bad for the Jews? Well, I think it was terrific for the Jews. Uh, I think uh, Joe Lieberman will go down in history as one of uh, having made one of the greatest Kiddushé Hashem uh, Shomer Shabbos Jew who didn't, who wasn't ashamed of his Shmir Shabbos, who, who, who made it well known that he couldn't do certain things because it was Shabbos. Uh, so that's, uh, that's certainly a change that couldn't have happened 30 years ago. I'm not sure it can happen again so soon, but maybe <laughs> hopefully it can. Uh, but that certainly is a major, major event. Nahama, a participation on a greater level of Orthodox men and women in all levels of government. What do you think? What impact does that have in the Jewish community? Oh, I think it's, a, it's an amazing development. Um, the fact that you see, you know, men and men wearing yarmulkes, women obviously not, but, uh, you know, in the White House, Jack Lou, uh, Tevi Troy, I mean, this to me speaks about the fact that Orthodox Jews are really becoming much more visible in public life and making a huge contribution um, not just to the Jewish world, but to American society. No question about it. The Chuva movement, Jerry. 30 uh, years of the Chuva movement. Tremendous uh, impact on our community, especially NCSY. Especially NCSY, which has uh, probably 30,000 teens uh, throughout uh, wow. the world. In fact, we went to Argentina a couple of years ago to initiate uh, in Buenos Aires a, a wonderful uh, new NCSY chapter. Unbelievable when you think about it. Uh, Rabbi Weinrib, the fall of the Iron Curtain. We spoke about this earlier in terms of Soviet jury and the difference it made for them. What do you think in general? Well, in, in general, I'm not going to speak about the world implications right. uh, for the fact that Russia is now in Syria, which is something <laughs> uh, we wouldn't have predicted 30 years ago. Uh, or, uh, but in terms of the impact on the on the Jewish world at large, um, certainly in Eretz Yisrael, we are talking about hundreds of thousands of Russian immigrants who have come since the fall of the Iron Curtain and uh, their their place in in Israel, but also in the United States, the various attempts that have been made, some more successful than others, uh, to bring uh, those who have left uh, the former Soviet Union closer to to Torah mitzvahs. Uh, that's been a major major concern. I know Rav Pam Zechatalik Levrocha, with whom I had a uh, close relationship, was was almost obsessed toward the end of his life with what can we do to right. keep. Um, those who were freed now that the Iron Curtain had fallen, make sure that they keep that they remain Jews in, in a very real way. Jerry, another peace treaty, the one that was sort of under the radar compared to the Israel-Egypt one, the one with Israel and Jordan, which has held up until this point. Uh, so far, yeah. uh, and uh, let's see what happens. Uh, we're all concerned about ISIS and concerned about the uh, the Middle East situation. But uh, that was an important uh, part of our 30-30. Yeah, sometimes we forget about that. Um, Nachama, greater awareness of sexual abuse in our community, something that... Uh... Yeah, th- this is an extraordinary development. Who would have predicted this? But the fact that you have books like Hush, which we reviewed, right. by the way... You had it in Jewish accent? Yes, we did. That must have gotten Oh, actually, of... Rabbi Weinberg reviewed it. <laughs> were you criticized for it? For oh, reviewing no. it? For... No. You were not? No, no. I don't At think the that time, I think it was anonymous, but then it, later on, the author came out, right? Yeah, but the author he, was anonymous at the time he wrote. Yeah, but even as but even as an anonymous book, it, it, it's content. Why did I not do an interview with oh, the person who wrote Hush? Because I felt it was inappropriate for me to recommend the book to somebody that I can't be responsible for that book and its contents. There's some graphic contents, and as you know, being in someone's home. Uh, 
So, so you yeah. did not suffer from any criticism for that? Uh, I don't recall. Wow. If I did suffer, I recovered. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, wow. Interesting. So you have you've addressed this topic in the magazine. <laughs> to, to truth be told, we have addressed we have um, we've had some interesting book reviews over the years. Some of the books that uh, you know the Nathan Slifkin books and yeah. other books that were not uh, you know accepted readily in the community. Um, Making of a Guttel. We've had a review of that book. Did you have a review? We of did. It? Um, there was also the Rabbi Roiman book. Actually, it's in this issue. We we republished the Rabbi Roiman book that was. Um, his dialogue with Rabbi Hirsch. Yes, yeah, his dialogue with one, what is it called, one world, two peoples, or two people, yeah, one I saw world. That, right. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we like to sort of, uh, look at books that, uh, others are critical of and say, well, what's we, really we going on? We push to be relevant. All the books that Nechama mentioned, plus many other issues, are relevant. Obviously, we have to deal with them sensitively, and that's a challenge. But we try to meet that challenge. Right. By the way, Rabbi Weinreb, aside from being a former pulpit rabbi and our executive vice president emeritus, uh, he's a uh, clinical psychologist. So he's given us a special uh, injection that makes us immune to any of this uh, overt criticism. Well, hopefully. I guess you have a perspective that most other people wouldn't have because of your yeah, professional well, background, it's, right? It's, it's, it's professional background. It's been a long time since I practiced as a psychologist. and. When I give psychological advice these days, I just can't charge the current rates, which... Uh, <laughs> and that's disappointing. Huh? <laughs> I don't want to say you're clinically depressed over that, but it is sad, isn't it? <laughs> well, there you go. All right, there are a lot of other issues, obviously. Uh, here come the judges. It is amazing to me when I think that all these Jewish men and women are now serving on the United States Supreme Court. Are we, are we at a third now, officially? A third of the Supreme Court is Jewish, essentially? Yes. I would guess, right? Not only that, but the it was a Jewish vote that passed the same-sex marriage right. um, laws. Uh, so that's, uh, I don't have to comment on that. Uh, the fact that Jews are on the Supreme Court doesn't necessarily mean that Judaism is getting any further because of their uh, representation on the court. Right. And By the way, we do have wonderful women uh, who are also uh, part of the OU who are at the very highest levels of our government. Uh, and Hani Neuberger, who is the wife of uh, Yehuda Neuberger, who's our uh, IPA uh, commission chairman. That's our political action right. advocacy group. Uh, she is, I think, the third highest uh, official in the NSA. Is that a fact? Yes, and we've done uh, profiles on her. Can you do a profile on somebody in the NSA? Aren't they always profiling us? <laughs> <laughs> um, boy, black Jewish relations. It, it, the the uh, the ups and downs in that. And so, it's so funny. The other day, I'm walking in my parking lot, and someone and we're together. Uh, some of my family members, and we greet this wonderful. Uh, um, black couple who are, you know, live in our building. And one of my family members says, do you think that they ever think that they, that we've had the same struggles in life, you know, historically that they have? And I said, that's a very interesting point you're making. You know, the, the parallels, of course, have been drawn a million times. And it's amazing with that in mind how it goes up and down the relationship. It goes up and down. Of course, I mean, the, the black experience, the African-American experience is reflected often in their songs and in their poetry and right. their music. And the connections there are apparent. Sure. Uh, et cetera. But the interesting thing is now we have an African-American president and mm -hmm. an African-American Republican contender, and they have very, very different uh, orientations toward Israel and toward the Jewish community at large. So the, the ups and downs are reflected right there right. Uh, in those two individuals. Plenty of people hate them both is what you're saying. <laughs>
<laughs> there are plenty of people that hate either one. Let's put it that way. Plenty, uh, pe- plenty of people who are hateful, period. That's also true. <laughs> By the way, you might find this interesting. Uh, in my other life, in my uh, business, I deal with a lot of uh, non-Jewish uh, minority people. And uh, one of my key people happens to be a woman from Colombia who has two uh, master's degrees. Who is The country or the college? The country. Wow. Although she went to uh, NYU and uh, Queens College when she came to America at the age of 17. She is a Roman Catholic and reads Jewish action religiously. And as a matter of fact, uh, she highlights all the words that she doesn't understand if we didn't do any uh, translation. Glossary. And, and that's my job. So we have, so we have an opportunity, all of us, uh, not only at Jewish Action, to make a Kiddush Hashem and to interact with uh, uh, people who are not like us. One can only read Jewish Action religiously, right? That's the only way one can actually read it. Um, English language svarim. You just alluded to this, Jerry. Uh, yes. Now, all of our texts are available to everybody, not just to us who need help, you know, and, and need the English translation, but now they're available to everybody. And if you if you go across this country, there are a lot of people who are using, you know, the biblical translations that are in our current English language svarim, you know, to study on a daily basis. It's interesting. I don't want to wax too personal, but at one point in time, uh, I was very opposed to the whole phenomenon of English language translation. I felt people should learn to read in the, in the original language. Right now, I am affiliated, as you know, as interviewed on this show right. about my role as editor-in-chief of the Koran Talmud Bavli and right. other uh, publications that are English translations. But there's no question that the English translations, you have to give Art Scroll the credit uh, for for really taking it to a whole new level and really really increasing Torah study um, many 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 times over because of the availability of um, of literate and accurate and scholarly and uh, interesting uh, English translations of just about every safer imaginable. Well, if you would see the calm in my home when I could pull out an English uh, Talmud and help somebody with their homework. <laughs> Believe me, it's a lot, a lot better, a lot different, a lot easier. It's but I, re- I remember, though, going to high school. In high school, we were not allowed to right. use an English homish. And I would bet there's schools that still today wouldn't allow you to bring it in, right? I, listen, yeah. I prefer not to have it in my house, <gasps> but I do, but I do. For I try to use it as backup, you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. I, I do think that Rabbi Warner is correct. It doesn't allow you to fully learn how to learn. Well, yeah, we agree with that, just... The backup has become my go-to. Let's put it that way. Uh, you, you write about the decline of conservative Judaism. I assume you mean that as a movement, right? You don't mean that as a political movement. You mean it as a religious movement. Um, I, you know, to put it a different way, how would you describe the growth of orthodoxy? I mean, the numbers must be, and I mean numbers in many different ways, must be insane compared to when Jewish action started. Number of kids, number of uh, number of people in now in day schools in this country, the amount of kosher food that's purchased, the you know, companies that make accommodations for Jews, government, as we mentioned, that make accommodations for Jews. In that way, there's such a vast difference in these three decades. Well, I, I don't know the numbers offhand, but what I find remarkable, though, is when you look at the early issues of Jewish action, there's a lot of tension between reform, conservative, orthodox. It comes up over and over again in different ways, subtle ways, more blatant ways. It, it's a non-issue now. We had a, a symposium back in 1986. How do we um, better relationships between the various denominations? It's not a relevant question now. The relevant question now is how do we reach out to our brothers and sisters who are assimilating at a, at a ridiculously rapid pace? The, the question now is more an emergency outreach situation. It's not how do we better relations anymore. It's a really different world in that sense. What's remarkable is the three decades, how things have so vastly changed. 
And that to me is, is, is it, it's really, it's sad what's going on. And, and then we also talk about in this very issue, the whole Kirov, how Kirov has changed. In a, in one, on one hand, the Chuva movement has declined in some ways. On the other hand, it's just taking place in different venues. You look here, you see that the college campus is, is, um, is sort of, um, it has a lot of energy. There's a lot of college campuses that are now um, ripe mm-hmm. for Jewish kids becoming more Jewish. And, and the OU itself has a JLIC program, the Jewish Learning Initiative on Campus. Which is amazing. Which these these uh, campus couples reach out to kids, Orthodox kids and non-Orthodox kids, right. um, serving as a support for them and encouraging them to, uh, for those who are not religious, to explore their heritage. But there are a lot of more, I think we mentioned here, there are 50 such um, campus movements now geared to outreach towards college kids. So this, I think, is is the um, is the feeling nowadays that it's not there's no denominational tension anymore. I think it's more like, well, how do we, you know, before the, before there's no one left to reach out to, what do we do? You agree, Arunib, that the uh, the tension's not there? I think I, I think uh, Nacham is right. The tension might be there institutionally right. between the leaders of the movement and this movement, and that movement, but seeking legitimacy. Of, in terms of facts on the ground. Um, it's it's changed drastically. Yeah. Look at Project Inspire. We right. Had, uh, millions of people, or maybe not millions, but uh, hundreds of th- thousands of uh, unaffiliated Jews throughout the world uh, preparing for Shabbos. Yeah. Pretty amazing. A lot of other topics in the last 30 years. I don't know if we're going to get to all of them. What's interesting to me is that Jewish action, it looks like to me, and I know that nobody sitting at this round table was there on day one. We established that, right? But it seems from the way you present this issue, that what the OU is best known for is what's least addressed in Jewish action. Would that be accurate? The OU is most known for, we know what it's most known for, and this could publication could have become halachic analysis of different kashrus issues, updates on kosher food. I mean, it could have been, this is what it could have been, but it never really became that. It became something completely parallel to that, in terms of analyzing what's happening in the Jewish world, you know, the issues of the day. Can I, I'd like to comment on that. I, I do want to give credit to uh, two individuals, the, actually the founders of the magazine, and that's Rabbi Matis Greenblatt, who served as our literary editor for many, many years, who unfortunately now, um, I mean, he's literary editor emeritus, but he's no longer, you know, so wealthy. He's not really involved in the magazine on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and and uh, Joel Schreiber, who was the chairperson at the time. And these two individuals had a vision, and the vision was not to recreate. Jewish Action actually existed as a newsletter, as an organizational newsletter prior to 1985. But it was nothing. It was like a throwaway. It was a, you know, a, you know, basically a OU news. Right. Um, and their vision was to turn it into a full-fledged magazine. Um, I don't know if they, they didn't have really full color in those days, but like a sophisticated, intellectually sophisticated publication that would speak about meaningful issues to the Orthodox world and really serve, as as Jeremy said, as a forum to raise issues, to, to raise conversations among intelligent people and um, and to serve as that kind of unique forum. And I think that we really try to hold on to that vision, even though Joel is really no longer involved in, in a, on a day-to-day basis and neither is Matis. However, both of them really gave us a strong foundation on which to build. 100%. And completely away from Kashrus, or at least the way it seems. Well, not really. I mean, we right, do, I know we do run a right. Kashrus column. You right. know, okay, we try to do it every issue. It's not every issue. Right. 
Um, you know, kosher news appeals to a certain segment of the right. population. But no it's question of that. Most people don't realize that uh, the OU has all of these uh, fantastic programs right. that were known primarily as uh, the, the foremost uh, kosher organization. 100%. But NCSY, uh, for many years, was known just as NCSY. People didn't know that. It was founded, funded, and uh, promoted by the OU. Same thing happening with JLIC, by the way. And Yachad. And Yachad, and a million other things. And the uh, job board, and a lot 100%. of other things that you deal with uh, with us, and uh, it's uh, an amazing organization, and that's why many of us love to be in, involved with it. It's a, it's bigger than all of us. Nachama Carmel, or by Dr. Tzvi Hirsch-Weinrib and Jerry Shrek. Uh, it's the 30th anniversary issue of Jewish Action. Those who don't subscribe, how can they get it? Can they contact the OU to get this? They could they could subscribe by sending right. an email to ja at ou.org, and they could also go online. The issue should be up online in a matter of days, www.ou.org slash Jewish uh, underscore action. In fact, by the time everyone hears this, it'll likely already be online. So I thank you all. Happy Hanukkah to all of you, and congratulations. Mazel tov. And to you on your trip to Paris and all you're doing there. Greatly appreciate that. Thank, thank you, you so much. Uh, you've been listening to the OU Jewish Reaction Program. This is the Nachum Siegel Network. Reminder, we are available to everybody on social media. All you got to do is uh, head to Facebook, Nachum Siegel Network Facebook update page, and on Twitter at Nachum Siegel Net. OU Jewish Reaction, Tuesdays, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, right after JM and the AM. Thank you all for tuning in. Stay tuned to us here at jmtheam.org and achomsegel.com.